morning. Today's passage will be in John, in the book of John, chapter 19. I'll be reading verses 1 through 27. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, in which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, but the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to, the, said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers 
had crucified Jesus. They took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from, one top, from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is God's word. Now you may be seated this morning and let's pray together as we come to God's word. Our God and our Father, we thank you again for the privilege that is ours to be able to be in your presence, to be able to sing your praises, to be able to receive your grace, and to be able to hear from your word. So Father, would you remind us this morning that it is your word that we are hearing, that it is not just the words of Luke as he recalled the events there on the day when Christ was crucified, but that these are the words that your Holy Spirit spoke through Luke, that they might be the very living and active words of God to us. And so, Father, would you use your word as the double-edged sword that it is, and would you cause it, Father, to continue the work in us that you have begun of transforming our lives by the renewing of our minds. So be with us, illuminate the meaning of these words to us, and glorify yourself as you continue to forge us into the image of Christ through the power of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, it's those words at the end of the reading that Jason just read there in John 19. It's those words that John records in verses 25 through 27 specifically that I want to focus on with you here this morning. The rest of that narrative there in John 19 is very, very familiar territory to us as Christians, chronicling the events leading up to and then culminating in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ on a Roman cross. So in a very real sense... The cross itself, the cross of Jesus Christ is the central focus of all our teaching and all our preaching as a church. We might have different themes that we pursue, different emphases that we focus on as we work our way through the various books of Scripture and God's Word, but the, the cross of Jesus Christ is at the center of it all and all of our lives as Christians. As, as people whose sins have been forgiven and who have been justified and been reconciled to God because of the blood that Jesus shed on that cross, all of our lives are centered around that event, that historic thing that Jesus did when he laid down his own life and 
and allowed his own blood to be shed for our sins on the cross. As people who have been buried with him in baptism and raised with him to newness of life, who have died with him, whose lives are hidden with him in God, the event of Jesus' death on that cross and his victory over death in the resurrection is absolutely central to our very existence, to our very identity, to who we are, to what we are as the people of God. And there's an aspect of that identity in Christ that I want to focus on with you specifically this morning, which is crucial in terms of how we live as the people of Jesus Christ. And that aspect of our lives in Him, as new creations in Him, as people who have been washed and cleansed and forgiven and justified and sanctified and glorified in Him, that aspect that I want us to focus on together today of what it means to be in Christ is the aspect of our corporate identity in Him together. Not just as individuals who can say, I have been saved and so Whatever happens to me in this world, I have the hope of heaven before me. Crucial as that is, he's left us here for a reason. And a huge part of that reason is our corporate identity together as the collective body of Jesus Christ through faith in him. And one of the most profound ways that the New Testament expresses that corporate identity and the relationship between Christians one to another in the church of Jesus Christ is through the language of family. Family. So, God uses in His words all all kinds of words to describe the reality of the fact that we are one body in Christ. That's a word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians, right? The word body. He compares us to a human body composed of many different kinds of parts and pieces that have to work together, live together as we... Together serve our Lord in His church. He's the vine and we're the branches. He's the husband and we're the bride. There's all kinds of language that the Bible uses to to describe our identity in Christ Jesus. And one of the most powerful forms of language is the language of family. And these verses in John chapter 19 where Jesus is speaking from the cross to his mother Mary, and to his disciple John, these are exceptionally profound words that help us to understand the kind of relationship that we have one to another in the body of Jesus Christ as brothers and sisters together with Jesus Christ. We're familiar with those words that we read earlier in 1 John chapter 3 during our time of confession of sin where John says this, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That we should be called children of God. We who went astray from Him. We who went after our own way. We who refused to honor Him as the Lord who made us in His image. We who did what was right in our own eyes instead of bowing and submitting to our God and our King. What kind of love have we been loved with that we should be called now His children? Not just the recipients of His grace. Not just forgiven. 
but adopted also. What great love is this that we should be called children of God? And so we are. So we are according to the great love of God towards us in Christ Jesus. We are His sons. We are His daughters. We are His children. That's what Paul declares, right, in Ephesians chapter 1, that we have been adopted by God. He makes that clear in Romans chapter 8 and says to us, we've, we've received this spirit of adoption and that that adopted status that we have now as children of God includes full rights, including the rights of inheritance, of everything that God has, which is everything. Full rights as as heirs, and he says joint heirs with Jesus Christ himself. God has loved us with such a love that he considers us in the same way related to him that he considers his own son, Jesus Christ. Which, of course, makes us, in that sense, children of God together, brothers and sisters, in a very real sense, one unto another. And that's what I want us to think about together today, this great reality that in Christ we are all literally, and in fact in a way that is even more profound than, than our earthly biology and DNA and genetic connection to our earthly natural family members, we are all, according to what God has done, brothers and sisters of one another in the truest possible sense, truer even than our blood relations to our biological families here in this world. And we need, to, we need to recognize that, I would submit, because oftentimes Christians don't look at each other that way. Christians don't see each other that way. And we need to embrace what it is that God has made us to be in Christ Jesus. So let's think together about why the community of new covenant believers in Jesus Christ are called family members of God. What is this community that he's brought us into together, and what are we one unto another in that community? The church of Jesus Christ, to which we all belong by faith in him, is so much more than just an organization, right? Which is is what so many churches think of themselves as, and operate as. Not so much as families, but as an organization, an association of like-minded people who share common ideas and values and goals. The Church of Jesus Christ is so much more than that. It is an earthly body of the closest, most intimate, most enduring relationships that exist in our lives, bar none. And the question is, is that typically how we think of the church? Is that typically how we think of our fellow believer, as our fellow Christians, as the most significant relationships in our lives? Or do we think of one another in the same way that co-workers might think of each other in an organization? I have to be related to them. I have to put up with them. I have to interact with them. I have to rub shoulders with them. I have to cooperate with them in some sense, but they're certainly not the closest relationships in my life. Whereas my family members, in terms of my, my natural biological connections, those are my most significant relationships. So that's, typically, this is how most people think about their earthly biological families, right? Which which is understandable, which is good, according to the very design of God. The institution of family, husbands, wives, 
children, parents, brothers, sisters, is a, a critically important institution, a critically important blessing. And, and within those bonds, the, the unity and the solidarity and the loyalty and the godly Christ-like love that holds families together is massively important. And the relationships within earthly families, natural families, ought, by the purpose and the design and the grace of God, they ought to be much more foundationally significant kinds of relationships than any other earthly relationships, right? Than friendships, than, than working relationships among colleagues. Because there is an objective, God-forged bond within families that goes beyond the bonds of other human relationships. And what I want to suggest to you today is that within the church, there is a, an objective God-forged bond that goes even beyond the bond of natural human families. Now you think about the massive importance and significance of, of biological families in this world according to the design of God, the institution of God. For many people, when you start talking about biological families and those massively important bonds and the closeness and the connection, they start to go, yeah, not me. Not my family. Because what should have been, what ought to be according to the design of God is not what was and is not what is in their earthly biological family, right? Because, because sin exists in this world. Sin exists in all of us and it, and it tends to, to rip things apart and to alienate and to destroy. And it, is, it has been the experience of so many people and so many families that what ought to have been joined together by the love and the grace and the purposes of God has been ripped apart by the realities of human sin in this world. And a lot of you have experienced exactly that. A lot of you have experienced the, the horrifically painful experience of the bond of marriage being ripped apart by adultery, by unfaithfulness, by divorce, which is excruciatingly painful every single time that it occurs, or the devastation and, and the lifetime anguish and sorrow that comes through all kinds of abusiveness that get perpetrated by family members one to another, parents to children, brothers to sisters, children to parents, the very people who are supposed to care for one another the most are the very people that often hurt one another the most and damage one another the most. And when sin like that shreds the bonds of family, it is, it is, it is unspeakably painful, incomprehensibly sorrowful. And, and what I think God would have us to know today and what, what I want all of us to know and be reminded of and be encouraged by today is that in Jesus Christ, God has forged a family. Not, not just a, a community. Not just a social club where we all get together and do stuff together and have a good time together. Not just a group of really, really good friends even. Or an organization of like-minded people pursuing a common goal. God has forged a family 
that is bound together with bonds that are far more significant and stronger and more eternally lasting even than the strongest of earthly bonds in the relationships within earthly families. In the best of earthly families, in those blessed marriages and families that have not been torn and ripped apart by sin and abuse, those are, those are strong bonds, right? Common ancestry, common experiences, common life, common love for those that we have been sown together by God with, that we share life with, in the strongest of families. And those, those bonds enable us, in families that are, that are knit together well, those bonds enable us to endure a lot together, right? As husbands and as wives and as brothers and sisters and parents and children. There's, there's a lot of grace. There's a lot of love that we continue to give even though there's been some hurt and some pain. In strong families, but there are some things that family relationships cannot bear. There are some things that wield deadly and devastating and destructive force within families. And when that happens, what many people are left with in this world is not good relationships with their family members, but the bond of friendship that they forge with other people outside of their families. And often with people who have gone through similar experiences that, that they've suffered themselves. And when that happens, they call those friends, they might refer to them with the language of family relations. You're like my brother. You're like my sister. And what I want for us to remember today together is that in Jesus Christ, God has given us more than that. More than just the bonds of common experience by which we might think of each other as more close than brothers and sisters in our natural families. In Christ Jesus, what God has given each and every one of us is eternal hope, right? Of, of redemption and salvation and eternal life in His presence. In a new heavens and a new earth, in a new world that knows no sin, no pain, no tragedy, no suffering, no loss, no death. In a kingdom where the king of all kings wipes every tear away from our eyes and becomes our eternal peace. That old Hebrew word, peace, shalom, meaning to bind everything together which has been broken. That's what God has given to us. And he expresses it in the powerful, familiar language of family. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. In addition to the great eternal hope and blessing that is laid up for us in the world that is to come in Christ Jesus is the great blessing that we enjoy now already in this world of our common ancestry together in Christ Jesus. In his great love, you have been given the right to be called one of his children. Not just a forgiven servant who gets now to work in his household, but an adopted child. And in his great love, I've been given that same right. Not because of anything I've done, but because of everything he's done in spite of me. I've been given the right to be called a child of God. 
And so in that great love of God, you, a child of the Heavenly Father, and I, a child of the Heavenly Father, you and I are brothers and sisters in the truest and in the most significant and the most eternal sense. More significant even than your earthly family relationships. That's what we are according to what God has done to make us such. That's how we've got to see ourselves, see? As God's beloved children. Do you see yourself that way? Or do you see yourself as a a servant of God who's been very, very bad, but who God has forgiven? Does it stop there, or do you go further and see yourself as a child who is loved and precious unto the Father every bit as much as your earthly children are precious unto you? Well, that's also how we have to see not only ourselves, but one another. Are we, are we precious that way to, to, to each other as brothers, as sisters in the truest and most ultimate possible sense in God's eternal family, transcending even the bonds of love and connection that exist in our earthly natural families. So beyond tastes and preferences and likes and dislikes and political opinions, beyond things that unite us together like like, like the, the movies that we enjoy, the hobbies maybe that we enjoy that we have in common, who we're rooting for in the Super Bowl, whether we're even watching the Super Bowl. Beyond all of that, the thing that transcends all those other reasons for us to fellowship together is the great redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, the great faith in the promises of God that are ours, the great love of God in Christ that each of us has been lavished with, by which we all have been given the right by God himself to be called his children, which makes us together brothers and sisters, and not just rhetorically, not just like brothers and sisters, not just in some sense of similitude unto the greater example of earthly families. Beyond that, even, is the greater and truer and more sure reality of what we are in Christ together. You know, in the book of Acts, the word brothers is used to describe the relationship between Christians more than 50 times. That's just what they called each other. And Luke doesn't use that word lightly. He's not just being overly sentimental. When Luke says that Christians are brothers in the Lord, he means brothers. He means family members. Because that's what Christians are. Not just friends. Not just acquaintances with common interests and beliefs. Literally people who have been born of water and spirit together into the family of our Heavenly Father. To use Jesus' words in John chapter 3. Together adopted as his children. As Paul says in Romans 8. Joint heirs together with Christ, with the Son of God himself. All of that, all of that is the context in which I want to think about these words of Jesus that he spoke on the cross as his last words, among them at least, in John chapter 19. You know the scene of this chapter. It's Golgotha. It's the site of the crucifixion where Jesus had been brought in order to be killed. He'd been betrayed by Judas. He'd been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he had spent the entire night 
in agonized prayer, anticipating all that is recorded here, what, which awaited him in the morning. He'd been dragged before Annas and Caiaphas, the high priesthood of Israel. Early on Friday morning, he'd been tried by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council in the temple, and then taken to the Roman prefect, Pontius Pilate, to be tried again, both by church, so to speak, and by state. Pilate sent him further up the chain to Herod Antipas, who tried him, sent him back to Pilate. Pilate had him beaten savagely and scourged mercilessly. He was made to carry his own cross to his own crucifixion. And when he got there, they stripped all of his clothes from him, divided them up, cast lots for them, and, and then they, they crucified him. They, they literally nailed him. This wasn't some symbolic thing. This wasn't some myth. On a cross that looked similar to that cross behind me, they nailed him with nails and hung him there to die. And as he hung there, beaten and bleeding and dying physically, and as the soldiers cast lots for his clothing, look at what he says there in verse 25. These words recorded by John, who calls himself the apostle that Jesus loved. And John isn't trying to be arrogant there and single himself out there and say, well, the other guys Jesus put up with, but I'm the one that Jesus loved. I had some special relationship. That's not why John identifies himself in the book of John as the one who Jesus loved. John simply is in awe of the fact that Jesus would love him. And it is the love of Jesus for him that this becomes the absolute identifying mark of his life. So as Jesus is hanging there on that cross, John records this, verse 25 of John 19, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, earthly mother Mary, who bore him in her womb for nine months and then birthed him in a manger in Bethlehem. Remember? Her. She was there watching this happen. And with her, her sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, the three Marys. And when Jesus saw his earthly mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, when he saw them standing nearby, he said to his mother, look at these words, well, and think to yourself, as he's on that cross, as he's dying, this is, this is the last words he may have to say to her. What would you expect Jesus to, to say to his mom what, at that moment? What would you want, if you were his mom, what would you want to hear from your son at that moment? What would he call her? At that moment of his greatest agony, as he's there literally on the precipice of all earthly loss, how would he refer to his mother? Maybe, maybe by calling her mother, right? Or mom. I mean, these are his dying words to her. She's carried him for nine months in her womb and birthed him there in that stable and raised him and nurtured him and loved him for 33 long years as every mother loves her child. And Jesus wasn't hard to love right? He was a good boy. 
She loved him. She's watching him now being beaten and dragged to Golgotha, and she's seen those spikes be driven into his hand. She's watching the life of her son drain away before her eyes. There's no hope that he comes down off of that cross. And as she stares up at him, he doesn't look down on her and say, Mom. He says, Woman. That's, that's what he refers to her as, woman. Now, why would he call her that? Why would he refer to her in that way? Why would he use that, what, what seems to us like a, a very impersonal word in this most desperate moment? Doesn't that seem a little insensitive? Maybe a little rude? A little less than loving? For Jesus to address her this way as she's standing there in sorrow watching her son die. And I would suggest to you today that it's anything but insensitive or unloving or rude. In, in fact, it's the opposite. And I want you to remember today, this isn't the first time that Jesus has addressed his mother this way with this kind of word. He also did it back in John chapter 2 at the wedding feast at Cana where he performed his first miracle during his earthly ministry and turned the water into wine. You remember that story, the host of the wedding ran out of wine, which was a disgrace for the wedding and, and, and it was dishonorable to those being married and to the father and the mother hosting the wedding. So Mary had come, remember, and she'd come to Jesus and asked him to do something to help, to fix the problem. And Jesus answered her like this, Woman, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What was that answer all about? <laughs> what did that mean? Well, what Jesus was talking about there in John 2 was, was his mission, the redemptive work that he'd come to do. What he was saying was, Look, as much as I love and honor and cherish my earthly mother, today I have to be about a greater purpose. Today I have to be about the purpose of my heavenly Father. So in other words, when Jesus referred to his mom as woman, he wasn't disparaging her. He wasn't speaking down to her. He was saying, my redemptive calling from my Father takes precedence, even over my relationship in nature with you now. And it's the same thing at the cross, see? There at the cross, Jesus wasn't failing her. He wasn't failing to meet her maternal and emotional needs as a son to his mother. He was meeting, in fact, a greater need. Her greatest need on the cross as a savior to a sinner. And in doing that, he not only placed himself in a much more significant relationship to her than this earthly relationship of mother and son that is the most significant earthly relationship, he not only placed himself in a much more significant relationship to her, he also placed her into a family that was much more significant than her earthly biological family was. And that's why he speaks to her the way that he does here, and to John the way that he does here. 
There at the cross, Jesus actually said the most loving thing conceivable that he could say to her. Seeing her there, as he, as he was nailed to that cross, as now his redemptive work, his mission was coming to f- fulfillment and to fruition. He, he sees her not just as his earthly mom, but as a sinner who needs a savior. This is what he's here to do for her. And so he, he in a sense, severs his physical, earthly, biological relationship with Mary and in its place creates something better a new spiritual redemptive relationship with her that is the culmination of the Father's work to save her soul. And so at the height of her grief, Mary lost Jesus that day as her earthly son. And that pierced her soul. But then in his great mercy and to her great joy, She gained Christ. She gained him as her Savior. You see how wonderful it is when Jesus said woman to her? Now look at verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, again John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. He's, and he's not, some, some commentators say he's, he's referring to himself there. He's saying, look at me, mom. Look at your son up here on the cross. Nope. Nope. Linguistically, grammatically, it's referring back to the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. That's who he refers to as her son. Jesus looks down from the cross, looks at Mary, looks at his earthly mom standing there weeping, devastated, broken with sorrow. And he looks into her eyes and he says to her woman, and then he looks over to John. And he says, behold your son, referring to John. You see what he's doing? And then looking into John's eyes, verse 27, he says, you behold your mother. You see what he's doing? I mean, John is, in an earthly sense, in a natural sense, in a biological sense, John is not one of Mary's biological children. Mary did not give birth to John. She is not his biological mother. But Jesus says, woman, behold your son. And and to John, he says, behold your mother. What what we need to understand from, from these words this morning that sometimes we kind of just skip over because the rest of the narrative is is what captures our attention and understandably so, so much more. But these words are so powerful. What Jesus is doing here is, is something far more important for Mary than just making sure that her earthly needs are going to be met after he, after Jesus is gone. And that's very often that's how these three little verses are understood. Jesus is just getting the affairs in order. Jesus knows he's going to die. He's not going to be there to take care of Mary anymore, to provide a home for her in her aging years, to meet her needs in her elderly years. So he's making sure there's somebody there for her, that's all. No, Jesus is doing something way, way more important than that. He's not just telling John, 
she's yours to deal with now. She's yours to take care of now. Again, John's not even a family member in a biological sense. There were other brothers of Jesus who were the natural ones to do that kind of thing for her, right? Mary had other biological sons, right? Of course. There are other men who would be the natural choice for Jesus to give the responsibility of caring for her now that he's going to be gone. Why not James, her next oldest son? Why does he seem to be giving this responsibility to John? Well, because John or Jesus isn't just interested in finding a place for Mary to live and someone who will be in charge of taking care of her now. Jesus is doing something far more significant and important here. In verse 28, if we were to go on in the narrative, it says that after these things, after giving Mary to John and John to Mary, that he knew that all things were finished. All things were fulfilled. And, and what that's referring to is his redemptive work, all of the Father's purposes, all of his mission in coming to earth. It had all been completed. It had all been fulfilled when he gave Mary to John and when he gave John to Mary. Not just because Jesus had now found a, a nursing home for Mary to live in and made arrangements with one of his disciples to, to look after his mom. No, here's what's going on. There on the cross... By his great redemptive high priestly work, Jesus had formed the new covenant people and family of God. His body had been broken. His blood had been shed on the cross, redeeming sinners from the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into relationship with himself in the new covenant and reconciling them all to God. And giving them the right by his great love to be called the children of God. And he's identifying Mary and John in those terms now, one with another. And that's how we have to see each other, too. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 13, speaking of the fact that both Jews and Gentiles, who used to have nothing to do with each other in this world, they've now been brought together to form the new covenant people of God, united together by a, a bond more strong eternally than anything in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, and he has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace. So reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility between us. Verse 18 of Ephesians there. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, and are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now those Jews and Gentiles who used to hate each other and, and despise each other and have nothing to do with one another are brothers and sisters in the household of God through the redemptive peace that Jesus brought that made them one man together now. And that's what Jesus is speaking of there on the cross. 
John, she's your mom now in a much truer sense than, than any earthly mom could be. And Mary, he's your son now. He's related to you now by a stronger bond eternally than earthly blood or DNA or, or genealogy. The church, the body of Jesus Christ, is in fact the community of our most significant relationships. Whether we feel like it or not, that's what it is in God's eyes. And that's true because of the great faith and salvation that we have in common by the grace of Christ. That's what binds us together in actual reality with a bond more strong than biology or, or human blood. The blood of Christ binds us together. In Philippians 1 and verse 27, Paul says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side together for the faith of the gospel. Together, united. That's what Paul labors for. That's what he wants to see in Christ's church. That's what he wants to see in every church. A unity and a community, but not just the community of friends and people with similar interests or beliefs. He wants to see the outworking of the realities of family community. Fellowship between people who might not have anything else in common in this world, but are bound together by the one Spirit who has given them one mind and one faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, that bond of faith constitutes us as nothing less than the community of his children. And I hope that doesn't just sound like some cheap platitude. I hope that you realize that that's what we are as Christians. We are together the children of God. Brothers and sisters in a family that is even more significant than even the best earthly biological family could ever possibly be. The blood of Jesus has created a new household of God filled by his spirit, binding us together, empowering us to serve one another and him in his kingdom. If we are in him, that's what we are. The church of Jesus Christ is nothing short of our new and truest family. So there at the cross, this is what happened. Mary became to John a mother in the household of God. Much more importantly than becoming an earthly mother to John. John became to Mary a son, not biologically, but in an even greater and more significant way, banded together, not just by genealogical blood, but by the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' household, in Jesus' kingdom, relationships between his people are more real, are more important, are more significant even than our relationships within our biological families. Didn't, isn't this exactly what Jesus meant, right, when he said, Words like this in, in Luke chapter 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What does he mean there? That's it's literally what Jesus said. Well, he doesn't mean to scorn our biological families. There's plenty of revelation all throughout the New Testament scriptures about how we to honor our fathers and mother and, and, and love those 
families and love one another within those family units that God has designed and placed us in. We're not supposed to turn our backs on them. We're not supposed to abandon them. We're not supposed to stop caring about them. What Jesus means is that if it comes to choosing, if loyalty to the Heavenly Father and to the brothers and sisters that we have with one another in Christ Jesus, if that loyalty to that new covenant family sets our earthly families against us because of unbelief, and it comes to choosing, then your truest family is the household of God. You choose loyalty to Him, and you choose loyalty to His children, adopted and bought and purchased by the very blood of Christ, over your strongest earthly loyalties. That's what Jesus meant. That's what it means to follow Him. You've got to be willing to lose everything in this world in order to gain me, Jesus says. And Jesus modeled that, didn't He? Isn't that how Jesus lived his life? Think about what he did in Mark chapter 3. In that chapter, Jesus had been traveling all over Israel. He hadn't spent much time with his family. He'd been teaching, he'd been ministering, he'd been preaching, he'd been performing miracles. And now he came to Nazareth in Mark chapter 3. What, where was Nazareth? Well, that was his hometown. Right, that's where they moved after Bethlehem when he was born. That's the city Jesus grew up, right? That's the city where all of his biological family still lived. That's where Mary was. That's where all his brothers and sisters were. So there's Jesus teaching and preaching, healing, casting out demons. And Mary, his mom, his biological mom, and his biological brothers... They came to see him, right? That's normal, right? That's expected, right? Jesus is in town. Let's go hang with Jesus. Let's spend some time with our brother. They've got every reason to think that while he's in town, before he would want to see anybody else, they could expect that he'd want some one-on-one time with them. I mean, that's what any of us would think, right? So they came to where Jesus was, and And they sent someone inside to let Jesus know that they're out there so that he can stop doing what he's doing and go out and see them. And it says in Mark 3 and verse 31, his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around and Jesus said to the crowd, oh no, they said to him, sorry, your mother and your brothers are outside and they're seeking you. And Jesus answered them, And said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around them, he said, here. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And again, Jesus is not just being rude or unkind or insensitive. What he's doing is he's, He's teaching them that in him is a far greater bond of love and brotherhood even than in our biological families. Time and time and time again, this is what Jesus stressed to his disciples. That his truest family are those who are committed to the will of the Father by faith in him. And that means that the body of Christ is our truest family. A family of mothers, fathers, 
sisters, brothers, to minister to us all the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, the joy of intimate friendship, brotherly affection, being loved unconditionally as Christ has loved us, being needed, being included, being valued, being cherished as God has valued and cherished us. Because that's what family relationships are, right? Of course we all still do things wrong, don't we? Of course we all within this new household of God, within the walls of this family that he has constituted, we all, we all rub people the wrong way sometimes. There's people that rub us the wrong way sometimes, which is precisely why we need to allow the Spirit of Christ to minister the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, not only in our lives in terms of our relationship to God, but through our lives and into the lives of one another, partly so that the watching world will look in and by our love this way know that we are the people of God know that we belong to Christ, even in the midst of difficult family settings, because hard times in the household of God and in the family of God's people, trying times between God's children, are awesome opportunities to breathe that grace of Jesus on each other. These difficult relationships in the body of Christ that sometimes Christians have with one another are opportunities for God's people to confirm to one another through commitment to each other, through, through the conflicts, that we love each other with an everlasting love, that we can express to each other unconditional love like God has expressed to us by sending His only begotten Son for us so that we can be patient with each other, so that we can be merciful to each other, so that we can be gracious with each other. And so that we can confirm in these ways to one another the truth and the reality of the cross and what Jesus did for us and the redemption and the reconciliation that he bought for us with his blood. And you can't have a family without genuine commitment. And genuine commitment is risky, isn't it? And oftentimes costly, even in our physical family, biological families. There's no family without a a commitment to love each other through the thick and through the thin, and how much more, therefore, in the family of Christ, who came and risked it all and gave it all. It wasn't even risk. He knew what he was going to give in laying down his life to reconcile us to God. We can't say to one another in the family of God, I'm only required to love my brothers and sisters and be committed to them if, if they meet this list of needs and desires that I'm going to define, and if they don't, then I don't really want to have anything to do with them. No, because we're not just friends. We're not just acquaintances. We're not just co-workers. We're not just associates. We're family. We're brothers and we're sisters. That's the bar, right? Didn't Jesus say in Luke 6, if you only love those who love you, what good is that? The pagans do that. You don't have to be a Christian even to do that. That's not how you evidence the fact that you have been loved by God in a very different way. Because I didn't do anything for God in order to earn his love for me. That's the love with which the Father loved me, so that's the love with which I ought to love, especially all of those who have been loved likewise by the Father, right? 
treating his other children with the same love and mercy with which he treated them. Treating them in that way as brothers and sisters in Christ, giving the same love and mercy. Because that's what we are. We're family together in Christ Jesus. Think about it this way. In light of, well, I'll, I'll read to you what Hebrews 2 says here in a second. Think about it this way in light of this, that, that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Most High, Great I Am, is not ashamed to call you His brother. And is not ashamed for you to call Him your brother. Are there people in your life, are there people maybe in your family, that you, you don't want them identifying themselves in relationship to you because of who they are and something they've done, and you want to say, I don't, have, I, I don't know that person, I don't have anything to do with that person. And you're ashamed to call them your brother, your sister, or even your friend in this world. Jesus is not ashamed to call you, no matter where you've been or what you've done, or what shame the world has heaped upon you, or what shame maybe your family heaped upon you, Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister, or for you to call him your brother. Hebrews 2.11, I love this. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. If you are in Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you his brother, his sibling, because of your common connection with him to God, to the Heavenly Father. He sent me to sanctify them. I did sanctify them. They are sanctified, so they're my brothers. I'm not ashamed of them. That's fabulous, right? You feel ashamed sometimes to call yourself the brother or sister of Jesus? Because, see, he's not ashamed to call you that because that's the objective bond that exists in the family of God. And then you've got to go, all of us, the next step and say, I have to extend that same gracious, loving acceptance to every other child in the household of God, to every other brother, every other sister, no matter who they are or what they've done. Are there other Christians, people for whom Jesus died, people for whom he shed his blood, in order to reconcile them to the Father that you're not reconciled to. Something's come between you. There's no peace between you, and it's not resolved. Sometimes you can't, sometimes you can't guarantee that it will be, but, but are there people between you and them, and there's some friction, there's some separation, the relationship is broken, some unresolved conflict? Have you done as Paul says in Romans, everything so far as it concerns you to be at peace with them. And the, the bar is high when we consider what Jesus Christ did in order to make us be at peace with God. We're about to come to the communion table together. The communion table where we come together to celebrate together everything that Jesus did by shedding his own blood to make us be at peace with God. And Jesus says, if you come and you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, you've done something and sinned against them, but you've not repented of it, 
and you've not been reconciled to them because you haven't gone to them and made it right, whatever it is, before you come, go to your brother and be reconciled and then come and offer your gift. Ask yourself that this morning. Are there people in your life that you've not gone to? Is there reconciliation that depends in some way upon you that you've been too proud or too ashamed or too whatever to to go and take care of? As we come to the communion table together, we come as family to the table where our Heavenly Father accepts us in spite of us and feeds us and nourishes us as His own children. And so we have to come remembering what we are. We have to come remembering that the only reason we can come is because of what our brother, Jesus, did for us on that cross. All that he suffered, all that he endured in order to reconcile us to the Father, in order to, in order to grant us peace with God, in order to make us part of his family. So this morning as we come, come and be filled with the love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts in Christ Jesus and that has bound us together in objective fact and reality as brothers and sisters in him because that's what he calls us. That's how he identifies us. So that together by the strength of his grace we can live in a manner that's worthy of this gospel which means chiefly loving one another according to what we are in his family. Come and rest in the reality of what you are as a child of God today, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you. The living Almighty God, who is the God of love, has adopted you into His family. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Romans 8, 14. You've not received a spirit of slavery, Paul says, to fall back into fear, you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry to God, Abba, Father. For that's what He is to us. And so as we come to Him, we come to Him with that spirit of saying, I rest in Your love. I rest in the peace that You've granted me with You and with one another. I don't come in slavish fear and trembling of what You might do to me because I know there's no condemnation. I come as a child. I come resting and secure in your love with my mouth open wide saying, Abba, Father, fill me with the love I need to glorify you. Amen? Let's pray together. Let's sing together. Let's come to the table together. Let's partake of grace together. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are for all that you reveal to us in your word that you have done, for all that you reveal to us in your word that you are, for all that you reveal to us in your word that we are in you. Would you help us to understand ourselves in light of this great reality, to understand our identity in Christ as the very children of God and brothers and sisters one to another in the household of God and with the love that you have shed abroad in each one of our hearts and that you have poured out in this church continue, Father, to show a unity and a peace which marks us, which defines us, that would show your love and your grace and your peace to the world. We thank you for all of these things and we give you praise in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I want